Hello again, Justin Spencer here. Treasure Island is considered one of the first coming-of-age novels ever written. A coming-of-age story is just that. The main character must, unlike Peter Pan, grow up. What makes these stories so wonderful is that we, the audience, have the opportunity to learn from someone else's experiences, both good and bad. They make mistakes, and maybe by learning what those mistakes are, we don't have to make the same ones ourselves. First, just as a thought, isn't it incredible that we are creatures that can learn things through made-up events? That's a pretty unique gift and opportunity, I think. But back to the main point. This week in Treasure Island, Jim Hawkins is introduced to one of the most famous characters in Western literature, Long John Silver. Right along this introduction, Jim is swept away by the magical world of the Bristol Quayside, the sights, sounds, and smells of which dazzle him. This heady mixture of exciting new experience and the kindness that Silver shows him seems to get in the way of Jim's better judgment. And that, I think, is something we can learn from. Keep your head, as the Rudyard Kipling poem says, especially when in the most exciting parts of your own life's journey. Welcome to part two of Storylight's production of Robert Louis Stevenson's Treasure Island. Chapter 5. The Last of the Blind Man My curiosity, in a sense, was stronger than my fear, for I could not remain where I was, but crept back to the bank again, whence, sheltering my head behind a bush of broom, I might command the road before our door. I was scarcely in position ere my enemies began to arrive, seven or eight of them, running hard, their feet beating out of time along the road, and the man with the lantern some paces in front. Three men ran together, hand in hand, and I made out, even through the mist, that the middle man of this trio was the blind beggar. The next moment his voice showed me that I was right. "'Down with the door!' he cried. "'Aye, aye, sir!' answered two or three and a rush was made upon the Admiral Benbow, the lantern-bearer following. And then I could see them pause, and hear speeches passed in a lower key as if they were surprised to find the door open. But the pause was brief, for the blind man again issued his commands. His voice sounded louder and higher, as if he were afire with eagerness and rage. "'In, in, in!' he shouted, and cursed them for their delay. Four or five of them obeyed at once, two remaining on the road with the formidable beggar. There was a pause, then a cry of surprise, and then a voice shouting from the house, Boo's dead! But the blind man swore at them again for their delay. Search him, some of you shirking lubbers, and the rest of you aloft, and get the chest, he cried. I could hear their feet rattling up our old stairs, that the house must have shook with it. Promptly afterwards, fresh sounds of astonishment arose. The window of the captain's room was thrown open with a slam and a jingle of broken glass, and a man leaned out into the moonlight, head and shoulders, and addressed the blind beggar on the road below him. Pooh, 
he cried. They've been before us. Someone's turned a chest out alone and aloft. Is it there? roared Pew. The money's there. The blind man cursed the money. Flint's fist, I mean, he cried. We don't see it here no how, returned the man. Here, you below there, is it on Bill? cried the blind man again. At that moment, another fellow, probably him who had remained below to search the captain's body, came to the door of the inn. Bill's been overhauled already, said he. Nothing left. It's these people of the inn. It's that boy. I wish I had put his eyes out, cried the blind man, Pew. They were here no time ago. They had the door bolted when I tried it. Scatter, lads, and find them. Sure enough, they left their glim here, said the fellow from the window. Scatter and fight them! Rout the house out! reiterated Pew, striking with his stick upon the road. Then there followed a great to-do through all our old inn, heavy feet pounding to and fro, furniture thrown over, doors kicked in, until the very rocks re-echoed, and the men came out, one after another, on the road, and declared that we were nowhere to be found. And just then the same whistle that had alarmed my mother and myself over the dead captain's money was once more clearly audible through the night, but this time twice repeated. I had thought it to be the blind man's trumpet, so to speak, summoning his crew to the assault, but I now found that it was a signal from the hillside towards the hamlet, and, from its effect upon the buccaneers, a signal to warn them of approaching danger. "'There's Duck again,' said one. "'Twice. We have to budge, mates.' "'Budge, you skulk!' cried Pew. "'Dirk was a fool and a coward from the first. "'You wouldn't mind him. "'They must be close by. "'They can't be far. "'You have your hands on it. "'Scatter and look for them, dogs. "'Oh, shiver my soul!' he cried. "'If I had eyes!' This appeal seemed to produce some effect, but two of the fellows began to look here and there among the lumber, but half-heartedly, I thought, and with half an eye to their own danger all the time, while the rest stood irresolute on the road. "'You have your hands on thousands, you fools, and you hang a leg. You'd be as rich as kings if you could find it, and you know it's here, and you stand there malingering.' There wasn't one of you who dared face Bill, and I did it, a blind man. And I'm to lose my chance for you. I'm to be a poor crawling beggar, sponging for rum, when I might be rolling in a coach. If you had to pluck a weevil in a biscuit, you wouldn't catch them still. Well, hang it, Pew. We've got the doubloons, grumbled one. They might have hid the blessing, said another. Take the George's pew and don't stand here squalling. Squalling was the word for it. Pew's anger rose so high at these objections, that at last, his passion completely taking the upper hand, he struck at them right and left in his blindness, and his stick sounded heavily on more than one. These, in turn, cursed back at the blind miscreant, threatened him in horrid terms, and tried in vain to catch the stick and wrest it from his grasp. This quarrel was the saving of us, for while it was still raging, 
Another sound came from the top of the hill on the side of the hamlet, the tramp of horses galloping. Almost at the same time, a pistol shot, flash and report, came from the hedge side, and that was plainly the last signal of danger, for the buccaneers turned at once and ran, separating in every direction, one seaward along the cove, one slant across the hill, and so on, so that in half a minute not a sign of them remained but Pew. Him they had deserted, whether in sheer panic or out of revenge for his ill words and blows I know not, but there he remained behind, tapping up and down the road in a frenzy and groping and calling for his comrades. Finally he took the wrong turn and ran a few steps past me towards the hamlet, crying, Jolly! Black Dog! Dirk! and other names. You won't leave old Pew, mates, not old Pew! Just then the noise of horses topped the rise and four or five riders came into sight in the moonlight and swept full gallop down the slope. At this Pew saw his error, turned with a scream and ran straight for the ditch into which he rolled, but he was on his feet again in a second and made another dash, now utterly bewildered, right under the nearest of the coming horses. The rider tried to save him, but in vain. Down went Pew with a cry that rang high into the night, and the four hooves trampled and spurned him and passed by. He fell on his side, then gently collapsed upon his face and moved no more. I leapt to my feet and hailed the riders. They were pulling up at any rate, horrified at the accident, and I soon saw what they were. One tailing out behind the rest was a lad that had gone from the hamlet to Dr. Livesey's. The rest were revenue officers, whom he had met by the way, and with whom he had the intelligence to return at once. Some news of the lugger in Kit's hole had found its way to supervise a dance, and set him forth that night in our direction, and to that circumstance my mother and I owed our preservation from death. Pew was dead, stone dead. As for my mother, when we carried her up to the hamlet, a little cold water and salts, and that soon brought her back again, and she was none the worse for her terror, though she still continued to deplore the balance of the money. In the meantime the supervisor rode on as fast as he could to Kit's hole, but his men had to dismount and grope down the dingle, leading and sometimes supporting their horses, and in continual fear of ambushes. So it was no great matter for surprise that when they got down to the hole the lugger was already under way, though still close in. He hailed her, a voice replied telling him to keep out of the moonlight or he would get some lead in him and at the same time a bullet whistled close by his arm. Soon after the lugger doubled the point and disappeared. Mr. Dance stood there, as he said, like fish out of water and all he could do was to dispatch a man to Bristol to warn the cutter. "'And that,' said he, "'is just about as good as nothing. They got off clean and there's an end. Only,' he added, "'I'm glad I trod on Master Pew's corns,' for by this time he had heard my story. I went back with him to the Admiral Benbow, and you cannot imagine a house in such a state of smash.' The very clock had been thrown down by these fellows in their furious hunt after my mother and myself. 
and though nothing had actually been taken away except the captain's money-bag and a little silver from the till, I could see at once that we were ruined. Mr. Dance could make nothing of the scene. "'They got the money, you say? Well, then, Hawkins, what in fortune were they after? More money, I suppose?' "'No, sir, not, not money, I think,' replied I. "'In fact, sir, I, I believe I have the thing in my breast pocket, and to tell you the truth, I, I should like to get it put in safety.' "'To be sure, boy, quite right,' said he. "'I'll take it, if you like.' "'I thought, um, perhaps Dr. Livesey,' I began. Oh, "'Perfectly right,' he interrupted very cheerily. "'Perfectly right. A gentleman and a magistrate. Now, when I come to think of it, I might as well ride round there myself and report to him or squire. Her master Pew's dead when all's done. Not that I regret it, but he's dead, you see, and people will make it out against an officer of his majesty's revenue if make it out they can.' Well, now I'll tell you, Hawkins, if you like, I'll take you along. I thanked him heartily for the offer, and we walked back to the hamlet where the horses were. By the time I told my mother of my purpose, they were all in the saddle. Dogger, said Mr. Dance, you have a good horse. Take up this lad behind you. As soon as I was mounted, holding on to Dogger's belt, the supervisor gave the word and the party struck out at a bouncing trot along the road to Dr. Livesey's house. Chapter 6 The Captain's Papers We rode hard all the way, till we drew up before Dr. Livesey's door. The house was all dark to the front. Mr. Dance told me to jump down and knock, and Dogger gave me a stirrup to descend by. The door was opened almost at once by the maid, "'Is Dr. Livesey in?' I asked. "'No,' she said. "'He had come home in the afternoon, "'but had gone up to the hall to dine "'and pass the evening with the squire.' "'So, there we go, boys,' said Mr. Dance. "'This time, as the distance was short, "'I did not mount, "'but ran with Dogger's stirrup-leather to the lodge gates "'and up the long, leafless, moonlit avenue "'to where the white line of the hall buildings "'looked on either hand of the great old gardens.' Here Mr. Dance dismounted, and, taking me along with him, was admitted at a word into the house. The servant led us down a matted passage, and showed us at the end into a great library, all lined with bookcases and busts upon the top of them, where the squire and Dr. Livesey sat, pipe in hand on either side of a bright fire. I had never seen the squire so near at hand. He was a tall man, over six feet high and broad in proportion, and he had a bluff, rough and ready face, all roughened and reddened and lined in his long travels. His eyebrows were very black, and moved readily, and this gave him the look of some temper, not bad, you would say, but quick and high. "'Come in, Mr. Dance,' says he, very stately and condescending. "'Good evening, Dance,' says the doctor, with a nod, "'and good evening to you, friend Jim.' "'What good wind brings you here?' The supervisor stood up straight and stiff, and told his story like a lesson, and you should have seen how the two gentlemen leaned forward and looked at each other, and forgot to smoke in their surprise and interest. When they heard how my mother went back to the inn, Dr. Livesey fairly slapped his thigh, and the squire cried, "'Bravo!' and broke his long pipe against the grate. 
Long before it was done, Mr. Trelawney, that, you will remember, was the squire's name, had got up from his seat and was striding about the room, and the doctor, as if to hear the better, had taken off his powdered wig, and sat there looking very strange indeed with his own close-cropped black pole. At last Mr. Dance finished the story. "'Mr. Dance,' said the squire, "'you are a very noble fellow, and as for riding down that black atrocious miscreant, I regard it as an act of virtue, sir, like stamping on a cockroach. This lad Hawkins is a trump, I perceive. Hawkins, will you ring that bell? Mr. Dance must have some ale. And so, Jim, said the doctor, you have the thing that they were after, have you? Uh, here it is, sir, said I, and gave him the oilskin packet. The doctor looked it all over, as if his fingers were itching to open it. "'but instead of doing that he put it quietly into the pocket of his coat. "'Squire,' said he, "'when Dance has had his ale he must of course be off on His Majesty's service, "'but I mean keep Jim Hawkins here to sleep at my house, "'and, with your permission, I propose that we should have up the cold pie and let him sup.' "'As you will, Dr. Livesy,' said the squire. "'Hawkins has earned better than cold pie.' So a big pigeon-pie was brought in, and put on a side-table, and I made a hearty supper, for I was as hungry as a hawk, while Mr. Dance was further complimented and at last dismissed. "'And now, squire,' said the doctor, "'And now, Livesim,' said the squire, in the same breath. "'One at a time, one at a time,' laughed Dr. Livesey. "'You have heard of this flint, I suppose?' "'Heard of him?' cried the squire. "'Heard of him, you say? "'He was the bloodthirstiest buccaneer that sailed. "'Blackbeard was a child to Flint. "'The Spaniards were so prodigiously afraid of him "'that I tell you, sir, I was sometimes proud he was an Englishman. "'I've seen his topsails with these eyes off Trinidad, "'and the cowardly son of a rum puncheon that I sailed with "'put back, put back, sir, into Port of Spain.' "'Well, I've heard of him myself in England,' said the doctor. "'But the point is, had he money?' "'Money!' cried the squire. "'Have you heard of the story? "'What were these villains after but money? "'What do they care for but money? "'For what would they risk their rascal carcasses but money?' Well, "'That we shall soon know,' replied the doctor.' "'But you are so confoundedly hot-headed and exclamatory "'that I cannot get a word in. "'What I want to know is this. "'Supposing that I have here in my pocket "'some clue to where Flint buried his treasure, "'will that treasure amount to much?' "'Amount, sir!' cried the squire. "'It will amount to this. "'If we have the clue you talk about, "'I fit out a ship in Bristol Dock "'and take you and Hawkins here along.' "'and I'll have that treasure if I search a year.' "'Very well,' said the doctor. "'Now, then, if Jim's agreeable, we'll open the packet.' "'And he laid it before him on the table. "'The bundle was sewn together, "'and the doctor had to get out his instrument case "'and cut the stitches with his medical scissors. "'It contained two things, a book and a sealed paper. First of all, we'll try the book,' observed the doctor.' The squire and I were both peering over his shoulder as he opened it, for Dr. Livesey had kindly motioned to me to come round from the side-table, where I had been eating, 
to enjoy the sport of the search. On the first page there were only some scraps of writing, such as a man with a pen in his hand might make for idleness or practice. One was the same as the tattoo mark, Billy Bones his fancy, then there was Mr. W. Bones mate, no more rum, off Palm Key he got it, and some other snatches, mostly single words and unintelligible. I could not help wondering who it was that had got it, and what it was that he got. A knife in his back is like as not. Not much instruction there, said Dr. Livesey, as he passed on. The next ten or twelve pages were filled with a curious series of entries. There was a date at one end of the line, and at the other a sum of money, as in common account books. But instead of explanatory writing, only a varying number of crosses between the two. On the 12th of June, 1745, for instance, a sum of seventy pounds had plainly become due to someone, and there was nothing but six crosses to explain the cause. In a few cases, to be sure, the name of a place would be added, as off Caracas, or a mere entry of latitude and longitude, as 62 degrees 17 minutes 20 seconds, 19 degrees 2 minutes 40 seconds. The record lasted nearly 20 years, the amount of the separate entries growing larger as time went on, and at the end a grand total had been made out after five or six wrong additions, and these words appended, Bones, his pile. "'I can't make head or tail of this,' said Dr. Livesey. "'The thing is as clear as noonday,' cried the squire. "'This is the black-hearted hound's account-book. "'These crosses stand for the names of ships or towns that they sank or plundered. "'The sums are the scoundrel's share, "'and where he feared an ambiguity you see he added something clearer.' "'Off Caracas. Now, you see, here was some unhappy vessel boarded off that coast. "'God help the poor souls that manned her coral long ago.' "'Right,' said the doctor. "'See what it is to be a traveller. Right. "'And the amounts increase, you see, as he rose in rank.' "'There was little else in the volume but a few bearings of places "'noted in the blank leaves towards the end.' and a table for reducing French, English, and Spanish monies to a common value. "'Thrifty man!' cried the doctor. "'He wasn't one to be cheated.' "'And now,' said the squire, "'for the other.' The paper had been sealed in several places with a thimble by way of seal. The very thimble, perhaps, that I had found in the captain's pocket. The doctor opened the seals with great care, and there fell out the map of an island, with latitude and longitude, soundings, names of hills, and bays and inlets, and every particular that would be needed to bring a ship to safe anchorage upon its shores. It was about nine miles long, and five across, shaped, you might say, like a fat dragon standing up, and had two fine landlocked harbours, and a hill on the centre part marked the spyglass. There were several editions of a later date, but, above all, three crosses of red ink, two on the north part of the island, one in the southwest, and beside this last, in the same red ink, and in a very small, neat hand, very different from the captain's tottery characters, these words, Bulk of treasure here.
Over on the back, the same hand had written this further information. Tall tree, spyglass shoulder, bearing a point to the north of north-northeast. Skeleton island, east, southeast, and by east. Ten feet. The bar silver is in the north cache. You can find it by the trend of the east hummock, ten fathoms south of the black crag with a face on it. The arms are easily found in the sandhill, north point of North Inlet Cape, bearing east and a quarter north. F. That was all, but brief as it was, and to me incomprehensible, it filled the squire and Dr. Livesey with delight. Livesey, said the squire, you will give up this wretched practice at once. Tomorrow I start for Bristol. In three weeks' time, three weeks, two weeks, ten days, we'll have the best ship, sir, and the choicest crew in England. Hawkins shall come as cabin boy. You'll make a famous cabin boy, Hawkins. You, Livesey, are ship's doctor. I am admiral. We'll take Red Ruth, Joyce, and Hunter. We'll have favourable winds, a quick passage, and not the least difficulty in finding the spot. And money to eat, to roll in, to play duck and drake with ever after. Trelawney, said the doctor, I'll go with him, and I'll go bail for it. So will Jim, and be a credit to the undertaking. There's only one man I'm afraid of. And who's that? cried the squire. Name the dog, sir. You, replied the doctor, for you cannot hold your tongue. We are not the only men who know of this paper. These fellows who attacked the inn tonight bowled desperate blades for shore, and the rest who stayed aboard that lugger, and more, I dare say, not far off, are, one and all, through thick and thin, bound that they'll get that money. We shall none of us go alone till we get to sea. Jim and I shall stick together in the meanwhile— You'll take Joyce and Hunter when you ride to Bristol, and from first to last, none of us must breathe a word of what we've found. Lives him, returned the squire. You are always in the right of it. I'll be as silent as the grave. Part Two The Sea Cook Chapter Seven I Go to Bristol it was longer than the squire imagined ere we were ready for the sea, and none of our first plans, not even Dr. Livesey's of keeping me beside him, could be carried out as we intended. The doctor had to go to London for a physician to take charge of his practice. The squire was hard at work at Bristol, and I lived on at the hall under the charge of old Redruth, the gamekeeper, almost a prisoner, but full of sea-dreams and the most charming anticipations— of strange islands and adventures. I brooded by the hour together over the map, all the details of which I well remembered. Sitting by the fire in the housekeeper's room, I approached that island in my fancy, from every possible direction. I explored every acre of its surface. I climbed a thousand times to that tall hill they call the spyglass, and from the top enjoyed the most wonderful and changing prospects. Sometimes the isle was thick with savages, with whom we fought, sometimes full of dangerous animals that hunted us, but in all my fancies nothing occurred to me so strange and tragic as our actual adventures. 
So the weeks passed, till one fine day there came a letter addressed to Dr. Livesey, with this addition, to be opened in the case of his absence by Tom Redruth or young Hawkins. Obeying this order, we found, or rather I found, for the gamekeeper was a poor hand at reading anything but print, the following important news. Old Anchor Inn, Bristol, March 1st, 17. Dear Livesey, as I do not now know whether you are at the hall or still in London, I send this double to both places. The ship is bought and fitted. She lies at anchor, ready for sea. You never imagined a sweeter schooner? A child might sail her. Two hundred tons. Name? Hispaniola. I got her through my old friend, Blandley, who has proved himself throughout the most surprising trump. The admirable fellow literally slaved in my interest, and so, I may say, did everyone in Bristol as soon as they got wind of the port we sailed for. Uh, treasure, I mean. Redruth, said I, interrupting the letter, Dr. Livesey will not like that. The squire has been talking after all. Well, who's a better right? growled the gamekeeper. A pretty rum go if squire ain't to talk for Dr. Livesey, I should think. At that I gave up all attempt at commentary and read straight on. Blandly himself found the Hispaniola, and by the most admirable management got her for the merest trifle. There is a class of men in Bristol monstrously prejudiced against Blandly. They go the length of declaring that this honest creature would do anything for money, that the Hispaniola belonged to him, and that he sold it to me absurdly high, the most transparent calumny. None of them dare, however, to deny the merits of the ship. So far there was not a hitch. The workpeople, to be sure, riggers and what not, were most annoyingly slow, but time cured that. It was the crew that troubled me. I wished a round score of men, in case of natives, buccaneers, or the odious French, and I had the worry of the deuce itself to find so much as half a dozen— till the most remarkable stroke of fortune brought me the very man that I required. And I was standing on the dock, when, by the merest accident, I fell in talk with him. I found he was an old sailor, kept a public house, knew all the seafaring men in Bristol, had lost his health ashore, and wanted a good berth as cook to get to sea again. He had hobbled down there that morning, he said, to get a smell of the salt. Well, I was monstrously touched, so would you have been, and out of pure pity I engaged him on the spot to be the ship's cook. Long John Silver, he is called, and has lost a leg, but that I regarded as a recommendation, since he lost it in his country's service under the immortal hawk. He has no pension. Livesey? "'Imagine the abominable age we live in.' "'Well, sir, I thought I had only found a cook, "'but it was a crew I discovered. "'Between Silver and myself, "'we got together in a few days "'a company of the toughest old sorts imaginable. "'Not pretty to look at, "'but fellows by their faces of the most indomitable spirit. "'I declare we could fight a frigate.' 
Long John even got rid of two out of the six or seven I had already engaged. He showed me in a moment that they were just the sort of freshwater swabs we had to fear, an adventure of importance. I am in the most magnificent health and spirits, eating like a bull, sleeping like a tree. Yet I shall not enjoy a moment till I hear my old tarpaulins tramping round the capstan. Seaward ho! Hang the treasure! It's the glory of the sea that has turned my head. So now, Livesy, come post. Do not lose an hour if you respect me. Let young Hawkins go at once to see his mother, with Red Ruth for a guard, and then both come full speed to Bristol. John Trelawney. A postscript. I did not tell you that Blandley, who, by the way, is to send a consort after us if we don't turn up by the end of August, had found an admirable fellow for sailing master, a stiff man, which I regret, but in all other respects a treasure. Long John Silver unearthed a very competent man for a mate, a man named Arrow. I have a boatswain who pipes lively, so things shall go man-o'-war fashion on board the good ship Hispaniola. I forgot to tell you that Silver is a man of substance. I know of my knowledge that he has a banker's account, which has never been overdrawn. He leaves his wife to manage the inn, and as she is a woman of colour, a pair of old bachelors like you and I may be excused for guessing that it is the wife, quite as much as the health, that sends him back to roving. J.T. P.P.S. Hawkins may stay one night with his mother. J.T. You can fancy the excitement into which that letter put me. I was half beside myself with glee, and if ever I despised a man, it was old Tom Redruth, who could do nothing but grumble and lament. Any of the under-gamekeepers would gladly have changed places with him, but such was not the squire's pleasure, and the squire's pleasure was like law among all of them. Nobody but old Redruth would have dared so much as to even grumble. The next morning he and I set out on foot for the Admiral Benbow, and there I found my mother in good health and spirits. The captain, who had so long been a cause of so much discomfort, was gone where the wicked ceased from troubling. The squire had had everything repaired, and the public rooms and the sign repainted and added some furniture, above all a beautiful armchair for my mother in the bar. He had found her a boy as an apprentice also, so that she should not want help while I was gone. It was on seeing that boy that I understood, for the first time, my situation. I had thought, up to that moment, of the adventures before me, not at all of the home that I was leaving. And now, at sight of this clumsy stranger, who was going to stay here in my place beside my mother, I had my first attack of tears. I am afraid I led that boy a dog's life, for as he was new to the work, I had a hundred opportunities of setting him right and putting him down, and I was not slow to profit by them. The night passed, and the next day, after dinner, Red Ruth and I were afoot again, and on the road. I said good-bye to Mother, and the cove where I had lived since I was born, and the dear old Admiral Benbow, as since he was repainted, no longer quite so dear. One of my last thoughts was of the captain, who had so often strode along the beach with his cocked hat and his sabre-cut cheek, 
and his old brass telescope. Next moment we had turned the corner, and my home was out of sight. The mail picked us up about dusk at the Royal George on the Heath. I was wedged in between Red Ruth and a stout old gentleman, and in spite of the swift motion in the cold air, I must have dozed a great deal from the very first, and then slept like a log uphill and down dale through stage after stage. For when I was awakened, at last, it was by a punch in the ribs, and I opened my eyes to find that we were standing still before a large building in a city street, and that the day had already broken a long time. "'Where are we?' I asked. "'Bristol,' said Tom. "'Get down.' Mr. Trelawney had taken up his residence at an inn far down the docks to superintend the work upon the schooner. Thither we had now to walk, and our way, to my great delight, lay along the quays and beside the great multitude of ships, of all sizes and rigs and nations. In one, sailors were singing at their work, in another there were men aloft, high over my head, hanging to the threads that seemed no thicker than a spider's. Though I had lived by the shore all my life, I seemed never to have been near the sea till then. The smell of tar and salt was something new. I saw the most wonderful figureheads that had all been far over the ocean. I saw besides many old sailors with rings in their ears and whiskers curled in ringlets and terry pigtails in their swaggering, clumsy sea-walk, and if I had seen as many kings or archbishops, I could not have been more delighted. And I was going to see myself, to see in a schooner, with a piping boatswain and a pigtailed singing seaman, to see, bound for an unknown island, and to seek for buried treasure. While I was still in this delightful dream, we came suddenly in front of a large inn, and met Squire Trelawney, all dressed out like a sea officer, in stout blue cloth, coming out of the door with a smile on his face and a capital imitation of a sailor's walk. "'Here you are!' he cried. "'And the doctor came last night from London. Bravo! The ship's company complete!' "'Oh, sir!' cried I. "'When do we sail?' "'Sail!' says he. "'We sail tomorrow!' Chapter 8. At the Sign of the Spyglass When I had done breakfasting, the squire gave me a note addressed to John Silver, at the sign of the Spyglass, and told me I should easily find the place by following the line of the docks and keeping a bright lookout for a little tavern with a large brass telescope for a sign. I set off, overjoyed at this opportunity to see some more of the ships and the seamen, and picked my way among a great crowd of people and carts and bales, for the dock was now at its busiest until I found the tavern in question. It was a bright enough little place of entertainment. The sign was newly painted, the windows had neat red curtains, the floor was neatly sanded. There was a street on either side and an open door on both, which made the large low room look pretty clear to see in, in spite of clouds of tobacco smoke. The customers were mostly seafaring men, and they talked so loudly that I hung at the door, almost afraid to enter. As I was waiting, a man came out of the side room, and at a glance I was sure he must be Long John. His left leg was cut off close by the hip, 
and under his left shoulder he carried a crutch, which he managed with wonderful dexterity, hopping about upon it like a bird. He was very tall and strong, with a face as big as a ham, plain and pale, but intelligent and smiling. Indeed, he seemed in the most cheerful spirits, whistling as he moved about among the tables, with a merry word or a slap on the shoulder for the more favoured of his guests. Now, to tell you the truth, from the very first mention of Long John in Squire Trelawney's letter, I had taken a fear in my mind that he might prove to be the very one-legged sailor whom I had watched for for so long at Old Benbow. But one look at the man before me was enough. I had seen the captain and Black Dog and the blind man Pew, and I thought I knew what a buccaneer was like, a very different creature, according to me, from this clean and pleasant-tempered landlord. I plucked up courage at once, crossed the threshold, and walked right up to the man where he stood, propped on his crutch, talking to a customer. Uh, Mr. Silver, sir, I asked, holding out the note. Yes, my lad, said he. Such is my name, to be short, and who may you be? And then, as he saw the squire's letter, he seemed to me to give something almost like a start. Oh, said he, quite loud and offering his hand. I see, you the new cabin boy. Pleased I am to see you. And he took my hand in his large, firm grasp. Just then, one of the customers at the far side rose suddenly and made for the door. It was close by him, and he was out in the street in a moment. But his hurry had attracted my notice and I recognized him at a glance. It was the tallow-faced man, wanting two fingers, who had come first to the Admiral Benbow. Oh, I cried, stop him, it's Black Dog. I don't care two coppers who he is, cried Silver, but he hasn't paid his score. Harry, run and catch him. One of the others, who was nearest the door, leapt up and started in pursuit. If he were Admiral Hawk, he shall pay his score, cried Silver. And then, relinquishing my hand, Who did you say he was? he asked. Black what? Dog, sir, said I. Has Mr. Trelawney not told you of the buccaneers? He was one of them. So, cried Silver, in my house. Ben Ronan Elberry, one of those swabs, was he? Was that you drinking with him, Morgan? Step up here. The man whom he called Morgan, an old, grey-haired, mahogany-faced sailor, came forward pretty sheepishly, rolling his quid. "'Now, Morgan,' said Long John very sternly, "'you never clap your eyes on that black... black dog before, did you know?' "'Not I, sir,' said Morgan, with a salute. "'You didn't know his name, did you?' "'No, sir.' "'By the powers, Tom Morgan, it's as good for you,' exclaimed the landlord. "'If you had been mixed up with a like of that, "'you would never have put another foot in my house. "'You may lay to that. "'And what was he saying to you?' "'I don't rightly know, sir,' answered Morgan. "'Do you call that a head on your shoulders, or a blessed dead eye?' cried Long John. "'Don't rightly know, do you? "'Perhaps you don't happen to rightly know who you're speaking to, perhaps?' Come now, what was he John? Voyages, captain, ships, pipe up. What was it? We was uh, talking uh, keelholing, answered Morgan. Keelholing, was you? And a mighty suitable thing too, and you may lay to that. 
Get back to your place for a lover, Tom. And then, as Morgan rolled back to his seat, Silva added to me in a confidential whisper that was very flattering, as I thought. He's quite an honest man, Tom Morgan. Only stupid. And now, he ran on again aloud, Let's see, Black Dog. No, I don't know the name. Not I. Uh, yet I kind of think I've... Oh, yes, I've seen the swab. He used to come here with a blind beggar he used. Well, that he did, you may be sure, said I. I knew that blind man, too. His name was Pew. It was, cried Silva, now quite excited. Pew, that were his name for certain. Ah, he looked a shark, he did. If we run down this black dog now, there'll be news for Captain Trelawney. Ben's a good runner. You seamen run better than Ben. You should run him down hand over hand by the powers. He talked a keelholin', did he? All keelhole him. All the time he was jerking out these phrases, he was stumping up and down the tavern on his crutch, slapping tables with his hand and giving such a show of excitement as would have convinced an old Bailey judge or a Bow Street runner. My suspicions had been thoroughly reawakened on finding Black Dog at the spyglass, and I watched the cook narrowly. But he was too deep and too ready and too clever for me. And by the time the two men had come back out of breath and confessed that they had lost the track in a crowd and had been scolded like thieves, I would have gone bail for the innocence of Long John Silver. See her now, Hawkins, said he. Here's a blessed hard thing on a man like me now, ain't it? There's Captain Trelawney. What's he to think? Here I have this confounded son of a Dutchman sitting in my own house, drinking of my own rum. Here you comes and tells me of it plain, and here I let him give us all the slip before me blessed deadlights. And now, Hawkins, you do me justice what the captain. You're a lad, you are, but you're as smart as paint. I see that when first came in. Now, here it is. What could I do with this old timber I hobble on? When I was an A.B. master mariner, I'd have come up alongside him hand over hand and broached him too in a brace of old shakes I would. But now... And then, all of a sudden, he stopped, and his jaw dropped as he thought he remembered something. The score, he burst out. Three goes a rum. Why, shiver my timbers if I hadn't forgotten my score. And falling on a bench, he laughed until the tears ran down his cheeks. I could not help joining, and we laughed together, peal after peal, until the tavern rang again. <laughs> Why, what a precious old sea calf I am, he said at last, wiping his cheeks. You and me should get on well, Hawkins. For all take my Davy, I should be his ship's boy. But come now, stand by to go about. This won't do. Duty's duty, messmates. I'll put on my old cock hat and step along of you to Captain Trelawney and report this here affair. But mind you, it's serious, young Hawkins, and neither you nor me's come out of it with what I should make so bold as to call credit. Nor you neither, says you. Not smart. None of the pair of us is smart. But dash my buttons, that was a good on about my score. And he began to laugh again, and that so heartily that though I did not see the joke as he did, I was again obliged to join him in his mirth.
On our little walk along the quays, he made himself the most interesting companion, telling me about the different ships that we passed by, their rig, tonnage and nationality, explaining the work that was going forward, how one was discharging, another taking in cargo, and a third making ready for sea, and every now and then telling me some little anecdote of ships or seamen, or repeating a nautical phrase till I had learnt it perfectly. I began to see that here was one of the best of possible shipmates. When we got to the inn, the squire and Dr. Livesey were seated together, finishing a quart of ale with a toast in it, before they should go aboard the schooner on a visit of inspection. Long John told the story from first to last, with a great deal of spirit and most perfect truth. That was how it were done now, weren't it, Hawkins? He would say now and again, and I could always bear him entirely out. The two gentlemen regretted that Black Dog had got away, but we all agreed that there was nothing to be done, and after he had been complimented, Long John took his crutch and departed. "'All hands aboard by four this afternoon!' shouted the squire after him. "'Aye, aye, sir!' cried the cook in the passage. "'Well, squire,' said Dr. Livesey, "'I don't put much faith in your discoveries as a general thing, "'but I will say this. John Silver suits me. "'The man's a perfect trump,' declared the squire. "'And now,' added the doctor, "'Jim may come on board with us, may he not?' "'To be sure he may,' says the squire. "'Take your hat, Hawkins, and we'll see the ship.' Thank you again for listening to this episode of Storylight. We would be really grateful if you would subscribe to the podcast and give it a nice rating and review on whatever platform you listen. And if you have been enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. We'd love to share these little bright lights of stories with everyone. You are my joy. You are my happy thoughts. I'll see you next time.